Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Well, today's guest is not only extraordinary, he's prolific. You might even say that he's extraordinarily prolific. He's a New York Times best-selling author of three nonfiction books about Wall Street, Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris, and Wretched Excess on Wall Street, and The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Frere and Company, which also won the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. His book, The Price of Silence, about the Duke lacrosse scandal, was yet another New York Times bestseller. And he's also the author of the books Why Wall Street Matters and Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short. One of America's most respected financial journalists, our guest is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair, a writer at large for Airmail, and a founding partner of Puck, a new digital publication owned and operated by journalists. He's written for ProPublica, The Financial Times, The New York Times, Institutional Investor, The Atlantic, The Nation, Fortune, Politico, and Barron's. He previously wrote a bi-weekly opinion column for The New York Times, as well as for the deal book section of The New York Times. He's appeared as a guest on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, the News Hour, The Charlie Rose Show, The Tavis Smiley Show, CBS This Morning, CNN, Bloomberg TV, MSNBC, and BBC TV, as well as on numerous NPR, BBC, and Bloomberg radio programs. And, as you might expect, he's got the credentials to do all these things. He worked on Wall Street for 17 years as a mergers and acquisitions banker, And he also happens to be a graduate of some great schools, Phillips Academy, Duke University, Columbia University School of Journalism, and the Columbia University Graduate School of Business. He grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and now lives in New York City with his wife and two sons. Please welcome the extraordinary Bill Cohen. Welcome, Bill. 
Thank you, Michael. That that was quite an introduction. I really appreciate that. Uh, I could have gone on. There's a lot out there about you, and you have done uh, quite a bit. You've had quite the career. Again, I, as I said in my introduction, I would describe your work as prolific. You wrote, I believe it's six extremely well-received books. And I, to start, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us just a bit about each. And let's start with Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World. Love the title. Tell us a little bit about it. So it's interesting that you say you love the title. By the way, that was my third book. I wanted to call it Omerta because I thought that's really what Goldman Sachs is. It's kind of a secret society where you don't, you know, divulge what goes on on there and but that got nixed by the publisher so it's called money and power so i'm glad you i'm glad you like it you know it was interesting because as a as a banker i worked with bankers from goldman sachs and competed and often lost assignments to bankers from goldman sachs there was just some crazy aura around that firm and so it just seemed after writing a book about Lazard and about the collapse of Bear Stearns, that the next logical thing for me to do was to write sort of the definitive history of Goldman Sachs, which, you know, I tried to do. And what was equally amazing is that sort of in the, in the middle of while I was doing that, the, you know, the financial crisis hit and there was the aftermath and then Goldman Sachs became the target of everybody's kind of envy and disdain because they had come through the financial crisis in much better shape than other firms because of their ability to see risk emerging and and doing something about it as opposed to just going along with the herd. I mean, they they really are very good risk managers. And, 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 and as part of that, the Senate Select Committee on Investigations, you know, did an investigation into Goldman and how they made it through the financial crisis. And, you know, they created this security, the, the synthetic security that, you know, got them into trouble and sort of put them in the crosshairs and they had to pay a, like a $500 million fine. And so there was a lot of investigations and hearings in, in and around April 2000. 10, I believe, and a lot of documents that otherwise would never have seen the light of day. Carl Levin and the senator from Michigan managed to extract out of Goldman and that I used to, I think I'm the only person that ever went through the 900 pages and put them all in order and made sense of them. And I was able to figure out exactly what Goldman had done beginning sort of in December of 2006 throughout the next year to avoid, you know, the fate that befell, you know, Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, and almost Morgan Stanley, and certainly, you know, Lehman Brothers. So I was able to tell that story, you know, thanks to Carl Levin, in effect, the late Carl Levin. Do you think that Goldman still rules the world? It's interesting uh, because I wrote a piece this week for Puck where I, you know, I pointed out that actually they don't seem to anymore. They still have the aura. They're still kind of, you know, as I like to say, harder to get into good job at Goldman Sachs than it is to get into Harvard. But, you know, their market cap is now like 50% less than Morgan Stanley's, significantly less than 
Bank of America, which bought Merrill Lynch, and J.P. Morgan Chase, which bought Bear Stearns. So even even the badly wounded Citigroup has a market cap higher than Goldman. So of the big five sort of bulge bracket Wall Street firms, Goldman has the smallest market cap, and I think is probably finding itself at a competitive disadvantage these days, even though in 2021, like the rest of Wall Street, it may just, I mean, that is record year of earnings of, of like $21 billion of net income. But at the same time, J.P. Morgan Chase at 48 billion of net income. So my point in that article is that Goldman needs to do something that it's actually not very good at doing a deal for itself. It needs to, it needs a bigger balance sheet. It needs different business lines. I mean, it's obviously still the leading investment bank, but you know, that's just not good enough anymore in an era where the rest of Wall Street are these sort of, you know, global banking marts, you know, with all sorts of different revenue uh, streams and profit streams, which Goldman just doesn't have, although they're trying, it's just not working out particularly well. So the answer is they're, they're, they're still very powerful. They're still highly respected. They're still envied, uh, but they're not as much feared anymore as they used to. Yeah. That, that I, I would, I'd share that, that, that observation, and you're obviously closer to it than me, but I would share that as well, that I think Goldman's still known for, for great people, but yeah, it, it doesn't seem that they quite have the same dominant competitive position that they once did. So then there's your book, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street. And uh, I couldn't read all your books in, in time for the show. And by the way, it would take a long time to do that. Bill's book's read really well. They read like like a story, and yet they are they are full of information. So it does take a little bit of time to get through them. But I did order and read at least most of this one. I, have, I admit I didn't finish it. I wasn't able to. But it, it, it brought back memories for me, memories that I would not describe as the happiest memories. And it was a reminder to me of how even the largest companies, like in this case Bear Stearns, could be wiped out very quickly if, as you say in your title, you have hubris. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I would say that that you, you focused heavily on Bear Stearns, but would I be right to say that this book was was about more than just Bear Stearns? Well, you know, it was about how Bear Stearns, which had been around for 85 years without a losing quarter until the fourth quarter of 2007, as you say, disappeared in a week in March of 2008 literally was preparing to file for bankruptcy if it hadn't been bailed out by a combination of the Fed and J.P. Morgan Chase, which bought it for you know pennies on the dollar essentially. But yes, it it it, it was you know I as you pointed out I, I mean I worked on Wall Street for 17 years at, at Lazard and Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan Chase and the people who work in these firms have no idea how they you know operate day to day. You know, they just do their thing. They're in their silo. They're rewarded to do M&A deals or underwrite stocks and bonds or trade or whatever it is that bankers and traders are rewarded to do, but they don't understand the plumbing of Wall Street. So part of what I was trying to answer, I mean, you know, there was like this dead body on the ground, Michael. There was this firm that this literally disappeared in the middle of March of 2008, the Ides of March. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what the hell happened? Like, how could that even happen? 
So that what that's what was as much a revelation as anything else, because figuring out how that happened and figuring out, you know, why Bear Stearns was at such a risk of collapse gets to the heart of our banking system and what we call, you know, fractional banking, which is a, a, a fancy term for the idea that you think when you put money in a bank or, or you know, in if you deposit it in a bank or you put it in a brokerage account or especially a margin account in a, at a brokerage, that that money is there. Like if you think that you put your money in a branch at J.P. Morgan Chase, that, you know, anytime you want that money, it's there. And as long as everybody doesn't want their money at the same time, you know, it is there. It's fractionally there, but it's obviously not there and it's never been there and it's never going to be there because if it were there, then they couldn't make any money because banks make money by taking your money. And you can verify this by looking at the, your, your bank statements and see what you, the interest rate that you get paid on your checking account or your savings account. It's about as close to zero as it possibly can get right. And still be positive. So they take that money, which is essentially free to them. That's their raw material. And then they lend it out to corporations, colleges, institutions, governments, you know, people, and and they capture the spread as well as fees. That's fractional banking. And so, you know, the money that you think is in your account is not there. And so, and if it were there, banks wouldn't exist because they couldn't make any money. So it's not there. And what happened in, you know, the depression in, in 29, 30 and beyond and why there were so many bank failures is because people were lining up to get their money all at the same time. They were panicking as that happens. People panic uh, and they all do the same thing at the same time. And, you know, when that happens, they're going to find out that their money actually isn't at the bank. And so that's why banks collapse. What happened in 2008 with Bear Stearns was a version of that. It wasn't individual depositors trying to get their money out. Not that Bear Stearns had many depositors because they didn't really have, you know, like a retail bank. But even so, you know, after the the, the depression, they created the FDIC, which guaranteed now $250,000 of everybody's bank account money. So if the bank collapses or whatever, you're... $250,000 per account is safe. That, you know, that covers most people except they like Steve Schwartzman or, 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 or Elon Musk, you know, they have to do something else. They don't have as much protection or they have a lot of bank accounts. But what happened this time is institutional lenders to Bear Stearns fled and, and, and wanted all their money. Hedge fund investors wanted their money all at the same time. So people who had more than $250,000 at Bear Stearns wanted their money at the same time they took that money out. And then, so that created problem number one. Problem number two, the fatal problem was that because, and I'm sorry for being long-winded, but you notice that my books are long and so the stories are long. But uh, I find after, this fascinating. I love it. Okay. Well, after, after the two Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed in the spring of 2007, so a year earlier, you know, and what Bear Stearns had to do to rescue those funds or didn't do hurt their damage, their credibility on 
uh, on Wall Street and, and damaged their credibility with lenders. So they were essentially, they couldn't get the kind of longer term financing that they had gotten in the past at rates that they decided were favorable. So they were slowly but surely pushed into the overnight repo market to finance themselves. So what that means is that they were getting the money that they needed every day from people like Fidelity and Federated Investors and others that would take as security the assets on Bear Stearns' balance sheet and then lend them for a small fee every day the $75 billion that they needed to run their business to whatever pay people as they wanted their money back, to trade, to keep the lights on, whatever it was. They, Bear Stearns had something like $18 billion of cash around, but they needed $75 billion every day, so they borrowed it from the, these repo lenders. But what happened in that week before March 15th is that the repo lenders decided they didn't want to take Bear Stearns security anymore, and that, you know they didn't think it was money good, and that security happened to be you know, sort of the mortgage-backed securities that they couldn't sell. So they had them larding up on their balance sheet. And until March of 2008, they were able to use that that lard to get the $75 billion that they needed every day to finance their business. But after that week, that's why it, it went down the tubes in a week, because these overnight lenders decided they didn't like that security anymore, that that, that, that security wasn't money good anymore, those mortgage-backed securities literally a year after they started falling in value, were no longer some security that they wanted to take. So what had been a market that had never had a hiccup before, suddenly in a week, this overnight repo market, suddenly in a week just went kapooey. And Bear Stearns couldn't get the money it needed from these overnight lenders. So it had to, uh, couldn't pay their bills as they became due, the very definition of being bankrupt. And they, you know, fired up the papers for file for bankruptcy. And then the Fed and the Treasury uh, said, hold, hold on a minute. We can't let that happen because we have no idea what would happen if Bear Stearns filed for bankruptcy because it is completely you know, interconnected to all other banks on Wall Street and all sorts of creditors and investors around the world. So we got to just take a minute here and slow down. So the real revelation was about A, fractional banking, and B, that every other firm on Wall Street finances itself the same way. And that's why they were all having problems, because when you borrow money in the short-term markets, it's really inexpensive. The only firm that thought about this differently was, of course, the aforementioned Goldman Sachs, which saw that there was a lot of risk in that market for this very reason. And even though it was cheaper financing, they did a lot of long-term debt financing, which was much more expensive, and equity financing, which was even more expensive. So they were making hand over fist at Goldman Sachs despite paying more for their raw material than other firms. You know, Bear Stearns, for whatever the two reasons, A, it was inexpensive, and B, they were sort of forced into that market because no one else would lend them the money longer term at rates they found attractive, and they refused to take more equity, they went down the tubes, which was the exact same reason Merrill went down the tubes and Lehman went down the tubes and uh, Morgan Stanley was about to go down the tubes. So 
figuring out how the plumbing of Wall Street works it, it w- was the riveting revelation of that book. And uh, guess what? It really hasn't changed that much. Uh, the Fed has just made it so they can't take the kinds of risks that they took leading up to 2007 and 2008. So, and they have much more, and required them to have much more capital than they do now. So the banking system still works the same way, but they aren't allowed to take as much risk as they were taking. Well, let's get to that because in your afterward, you offer what I thought was a was a great, easy to read metaphor. You, 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 this is you writing in late 2009 and you say, I'm going to quote, it's a little bit of a long quote, but you say, the same palpable eerie calm that follows a nasty summer storm has found its way into nearly every nook and cranny of what used to be known as Wall Street. One year after the mass destruction of American capitalism that swallowed up whole Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, AIG, Washington Mutual, Wachovia, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and scores of other smaller regional banks, and with predictions that as many as 400 more may fall this year, again, you're writing this in 2009, an eerie calm has replaced the creative destruction. And you go on to wonder whether or when we'll have another major storm in the future. So do you have uh, any thinking about that? <laughs> are, are we looking at a potential new storm right now? And what might that look like if we do experience another storm? Well, we'll always experience another financial storm uh, because that's the very nature of our banking system and the fractional banking system that we just talked about. Because banking is a confidence game. And as long as the confidence is there in the institutions, is there the confidence that, you know, what is it, what, to provide someone with credit, the Latin root of the word credit is credere, I believe, which means to believe. You lend somebody money because you believe you're going to get that money back. You put your, that's, you know, the ultimate act of faith and confidence. If you put your money in a bank, you obviously believe it's going to be there whenever you want it. And of course, most of the time it is, but as we discussed, it's not always there. It's never there because if it were there, they couldn't make any money. So when that confidence is lost and who knows, you can never be predicted what the catalyst will be, but you know, not in book form, but in essay form and in opinion piece form I've been writing in the New York Times and the FT and other places in Barron's for years now about how I believe another financial crisis, we're at the, literally at the doorstep of another major financial crisis. And, and this one, I think, is really caused by the Fed and the Fed's quantitative easing policies, which began in, in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2009, where they realized that to to you know it was kind of a genius thing i mean it had been tried in the early 30s by fdr this sort of concept of quantitative easing people think it was new to bernanke but it actually wasn't bernanke had was a student of the depression and had i believe done his phd about the depression and so knew i assume i haven't talked to him about this about FDR's attempt to try quantitative easing, and it didn't last very long because it didn't work for whatever reason. They they decided that wasn't the right policy, which ended up prolonging 
the Depression, as we all know, until World War II. And so Bernanke, being a student of that, decided to take the exact opposite approach and decided to not make money tight, but to make the money supply incredibly loose. And the way he decided to do that was through this process of quantitative easing, which was, you know, going into the market and buying debt-like securities. When all of a sudden you have a big buyer in the market for anything and the supply is limited, it obviously drives the price up. So by driving the price of bonds and other debt securities up, that drives their interest rate down, as anybody knows uh, who buys bonds or is familiar with bonds. Higher price means lower yield. And so Bernanke's thought was, well, we'll buy up all these securities that nobody wants and get them at a discount, do whatever, get them at a fair price. They'll be worth more to us. We hold them to maturity because we're this, you know, 10,000 pound gorilla in the bond market and that'll drive interest rates down, which will make long-term, we can already manipulate short-term interest rates because that's what the Fed can do directly. And through quantitative easing, was able to manipulate long-term interest rates lower. So basically the cost of money was manipulated down to the lowest levels in recorded history. When you make money free, essentially, which is what the Fed has been doing now since 2009. We're into like the 13th year of this and and all the evidence you need to see if you just go to the Fed's balance sheet and you can see that before the crisis began, the assets on the Fed's balance sheet was were about $900 billion. Now they're close to $9 trillion. So the, so the Fed has expanded its balance sheet by 10 times. And, you know, we're talking large numbers, trillions of dollars. So the Fed has bought something like $8 trillion worth of debt and debt-like securities for the last 13 years, you know, continuously driving up the price of bonds and driving their yields down so that the price of money has been virtually free, which if you're a borrower, you know, is fabulous. If you're an issuer of debt, that's fabulous. Why, why do you think the, why do you think there's been so much debt issuance in the last, you know, five, eight years. I mean, it's been an explosion and, and and Wall Street investment banks have been making money hand over fist, you know, you know, underwriting bonds. So bond prices are extraordinarily high. Bond yields are historically low, which makes, in my mind, the bond market uninvestable. And so when the bond market is uninvestable, people, because it's been artificially, the prices of bonds have been artificially driven up by the Fed and the yields artificially driven low by the Fed. Investors, you know, don't want to invest, shouldn't, shouldn't. I don't, I mean, not only do they not want to, they absolutely should not invest in bonds because at the moment they're uninvestable. Although that's maybe changing immediately now as we are speaking, but it's, you know, in the last 13 years. And so they turn to the stock market, the only place they can turn to. And, and, you know, and that's why since March of 2009, stock, the stock market has quintupled. It was 6,500. Now it's 36,000, right? So all you had to do is keep your money, you know, in the stock market when everyone else was freaking out in the fall of 2000. Eight uh, in the spring of 2009, all you had to do is keep your money in the stock market and you would make five times your money. Now, that's pretty good. And uh, that's, you know, without a whole lot of, of risk. And, but the, the other thing that, that, so now we have both the bond market at historic highs 
the stock market at historic highs. And then, of course, we've got all sorts of other crazy things going on where people, you know, because of the pandemic, have, you know, sitting on their couches all day long and not doing much, have decided to create all these crazy meme stocks, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, any, you know, driving up the price of all of these things. And of course, SPACs and the IPO market is, you know, we're really at the end of a incredibly long cycle and people are absolutely losing their minds. And again, since the first of the year, as, as I've been writing now for years about how the bond market was uninvestable and how all these crazy things, whether it's SPACs or meme stocks or cryptocurrencies, which are just a way to speculate at the moment, you know, they're all now returning to earth, which, you know, makes for great copy for journalists, but people who uh, invested in all of those things at much higher prices than they're trading for now have actually lost an awful lot of money. And I think what we're seeing now is a long overdue you know, rotation, you know, when, you know, Facebook slash Meta reports poor earnings, the stock goes down 20%, the single largest loss of any stock in one day in history. Netflix goes down 30%. You know, you know, you're seeing it, you're seeing a rotation out of finally, people are coming to their senses a little bit, not fully, we have, it hasn't turned into a full-blown crisis yet. But, you know, a lot of people are getting burned. And a lot of the reason for this is the combination of earnings that were not sustainable. And the Fed has finally said, guess what? We're going to take the morphine uh, drip out of people's arms. And we're going to, you know, start raising interest rates. Not only are we thinking about thinking about raising interest rates, we're actually going to do it now because inflation is wildly out of control. And so people expect the Fed to start raising interest rates in March. They, of course, have to telegraph that early. And so the market has gotten really jittery. And, you know, basically we'll see if the Fed has the cojones to stick with this, which they absolutely should do, because, of course, the role of the Fed, as the long-serving Fed chairman William McChesney Martin said, was to take the punch ball away as the party's getting started. Unfortunately, the Fed for the last 13 years has been pouring tequila into the punch bowl, and I don't think there's any punch in the punch bowl. I think it's just pure tequila. And so if they actually are going to start taking the punch bowl away, uh, and, you know, as I, another metaphor I like is to, you know, put foam on the runway to try to land this crazy, you know, experiment, you know, safely, they're going to have to start foaming the runway. They're going to have to start taking the punch bowl away. They're going to have to start raising interest rates. And people are going to have to come to their senses about the the assets that they've been investing in and how crazy it's been. And that's going to mean bond prices are going to fall. Interest rates are going to rise. Stock prices are going to fall. And if they do it well, and if they do it right, and if they stick to their guts here, which, you know, they may not be able to do because they normally just freak out and give in to investors. But if they stick to it, then there's going to be some pain, but in the long run, we'll be much better off. So that's what I was going to say, that there's a difference between uh, a correction, a bear market, and a crisis. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that there have been excesses and those things it's healthy for them to be corrected. We might be headed toward a bear market. I'm not hearing you say we're definitively heading toward a crisis. Yeah, I think the best outcome we can have now is, is you know, after years of 
bond prices going up, of stock prices going up again, really going back to March of 2009, 6,500 to 36,000. Really, can you ask for anything more? Can you really legitimately ask for anything more? The best we can hope for is sort of a a bear market where prices go down 10 or 20%. And then, you know, some of the excess is shaken out of the system. Meme stocks disappear, SPACs disappear, crypto, you know, 2,000 different cryptocurrencies, you know, 1,995 of them disappear. You know, the five survivors actually have meaning and do something that's useful, perhaps. You know, people aren't spending $69 million on a digital, an art, a piece of digital artwork. So, I mean, I think that's the best case scenario. If the Fed doesn't stick to its conviction here, which again, as I said in the past, it's, you know, when the market started freaking out, the Fed just said, oh, well, okay. I guess we were just kidding. Powell sticks to it here, which I think he will because he's been renominated and he knows that if he doesn't uh, do something, the shit's going to hit the fan, if I may use that word. And so I think he's going to, you know, it's going to be rough. I mean, markets maybe go sideways for a bit, maybe even go down. You know, I get asked all the time, well, if you believe this bill, you know, what, what do we do? And my answer is, well, if you were, if you're a big, you know, hedge fund or a big institutional investor, you can probably buy credit default swaps and protect yourself, or you can invest in a hedge fund, the whole purpose of which is to provide insurance in times like this, funds that I've written up. Or, you know, for the little guy, it's a very dangerous time, but, you know, unless you believe the market is going to correct more than 25% which is basically the capital gains tax rate between federal and state, you should just sit tight because, and, and endure it. Because, you know, if the market gave you five times your money from March of 2009 to, to March of 2022, you know, and you lose a quarter of it, you know, what do you have to complain about? Where's the complaint? But why would you, if you sell your stocks, which have probably gone up a lot, assuming you haven't been buying them lately at the high inflated prices. But if you bought them, you know, you just held on to them, then why perfect the, the, the gain and pay the tax of 25%? That's basically the same as the market going down 25%. Right. So if you don't believe the market's going to go down 25%, you shouldn't be freaking out and panicking. In fact, you should be telling your financial advisor, you know, Netflix is on sale. Look what Bill Ackman did, the the, the big hedge fund manager. He he bought a billion dollars worth of Netflix stock last week because it was down 30, 40%. That's a great company on sale. And and Bill, I mean, I, I, I don't know this, but I assume you do believe that the market is a or the markets are one large discounting mechanism and that the markets are at least somewhat omniscient if that is not a paradox and and that much of this might already be getting priced into the markets yeah i mean i think we have to decide which markets we're talking about of course the bond market is just like again i apologize to people who invest in bond i mean if you hold a bond to maturity you're 
you'll find you get what you bargained for your small amount of return. Assuming that uh, the company that you're has borrowed money from you doesn't go bankrupt, but basically the bond market remains uninvestable. You know, you know the high yield bond market last fall, high yield bonds on the index, the Fred index out of St. Louis Fed was yielding under four percent, three point nine five percent, which for a high yield bond is absurd. Okay, because that's a bond that's a bond issued by a company with the worst credit, it could still issue, you know, that, you know, Mike Milken created the junk bond market, that fabulous and incredible innovation. But, but when Mike Milken was issuing junk bonds, you know, underwriting junk bonds of companies, they were yielding 10, 11, 12%. Plus he was getting warrants, which he was pocketing and et cetera, which got him into trouble. Okay. When junk bonds are yielding under 4% and people are buying them, you, you have to have your head examined. That's, I mean, you just have to be living in a different planet because it's obvious that you're going to lose money, a, a, a principal. You're going to lose a lot of principal, uh, again, unless you hold it to the maturity and they don't go bankrupt. But that's tying up your money for 7, 10, 20, 30 years. That's a long time. And now, look, already the bond market, the high-yield market is up to, I think, like 550. So so if you bought a, a high-yield bond in, in November that was yielding under 4% and now it's yielding 550, the average is yielding 550, you've lost, you know, money on that bond. So so you have to talk, what market are we talking about? I mean, so, you know, Bitcoin is down 50%, Ethereum is down 50%. So the crypto market, which is basically pure speculation, is down. The SPAC market is down where it should be down and out. It should be because it's ridiculous bull market phenomenon. The meme stocks are down, but you know, for high quality companies where the PE ratio or the PE to growth ratio has did not get out of control. I'm not, so I'm not talking about Tesla here. I'm talking about, you know, high quality companies with steady cash flows, good management, low amount of debt, maybe even dividend paying. This is a this is a buying opportunity. You know, as Warren Buffett says, you know, you don't go wrong buying America, you know, and when everybody else is selling, this is the time you should be buying. Now it takes guts, it takes gonies because it's counterintuitive, but that's when you make money. I mean, look at it this way. You know, if you had been like coveting, I don't know, take an example of, you know, you, you, you've been coveting like an F-150, a new electric F-150. And that's like, you know, they're going to charge you 60,000 bucks for that thing. And it's a beautiful thing. You really want it. And the next thing you know, they're saying, no, 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 no. We've changed our mind. It's now it's only 30,000. You're not going to say, oh my God, no, I only wanted that thing when it was 60,000 because that was cool at 60,000. And it's not cool at 30,000. You're going to say, oh my God, this is a chance of a lifetime. I can buy this thing at 30,000. I've wanted it. I couldn't get it at 60,000. I wouldn't, it was ridiculous at 60,000. Now it's 30,000. I can't, I'm going right out and buying it. Well, isn't that Netflix? Isn't that, you know, all these things? I mean, again, as long as it's tied to real cash flows, the thing I don't like about, you know, the story of Bitcoin is fascinating to me, and I'm working on a documentary film about cryptocurrency, which is riveting and fascinating. But, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have any cash flows. There's no cash flow tied to Bitcoin. It's pure speculation. So I don't really get off on things that are pure speculation. 
I mean, you know, it's fun as long as it's going up, but it can't be fun for people since November since it's half price. And it's not like half price in, oh my God, now I want to get in on it. Unless you're Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, and that's a different MicroStrategy. I, I told him he should change the name of his company to MacroStrategy because that's a macro strategy. So yeah, for the right companies, this is a, you know, huge buying opportunity. I think Bill Ackman is a smart guy. He's going to do just fine with Netflix. I could talk to you forever about about the future of the markets and where we are right now, but I do want to keep going through your your work. So, so I wanted to talk to you. Well, actually, before I ask the before I ask about about the history of Lazard, I I'm I'm curious. Do you get any hate out of Goldman or Bear Stearns? I get a lot of hate mail or people upset with with what you've written. Yeah, it's unfortunately the nature of the beast. When you pull the curtain back on secret societies, you're not going to get a lot of love from the people who run those secret societies. You know, as I, after Jimmy Kane died a few weeks ago and I wrote an obit in the FT and I wrote something in Puck about him, I think my last line in the Puck story was that, you know, Jimmy Kane never spoke to me again. So after spending hours and hours and hours with me, like tons of time with me, in in 2009, I mean, excuse me, 2008, after Bear Stearns collapsed, because he wanted to, he wanted to tell the story, and he was great. What a character! I mean, the guy was riveting. I, you know, it wasn't my kind of guy, but I love spending time with him because he was so entertaining, and the stories were just riveting. But then the book came out in March of about 2009. I never heard from him again. Never heard from him again. I did hear from Ace Greenberg, who also died. Now Ace made the decision. He was, you know, Jimmy's yeah. partner at Bear Stearns, the head of the firm before Jimmy, and then, you know, the chairman of the firm. Ace made the decision not to talk to me. He was the only person at Bear, really, uh, who I wanted to talk to who wouldn't talk to me. And then he wrote his own book, which was kind of pathetic, frankly. And then he called me up afterwards, after my book came out, after his book came out, and he said, you know, let's have lunch. I made a big mistake. I should have talked to you. So we we were friends from there until he died. You know, the, the Goldman people have talked to me. Many of them are re, remain in contact with me. I mean, I'm blessed that I get to talk to Hank Paulson a lot because I think Hank Paulson's an incredible guy. You know, the current CEO, David Solomon, talked to me a lot, but he's now angry at me because I wrote a piece in Airmail about this small divorce firm, a law, a law firm that specializes in divorce and was doing all these divorces for the Goldman Partners, a firm that no one heard of, and was sort of doing a scorched earth defense of their clients. And it was really nasty, a nasty kind of thing. And so it was a fun, great story, but they now hate me at Goldman because I wrote that story. So they won't talk to me anymore. You know, Lazard... They don't talk to my old friends and colleagues at Lazard, you know, love me and talk to me all the time. But the people who run Lazard hate me. So they don't talk to me anymore. The Duke administration hates me, even though I went there and have been a generous alum. But they hate me uh, because I wrote about the Duke lacrosse scandal in a way that they did not like. In fact, the president of Duke, Dick Broadhead, who former provost at Yale, I think, or dean of students at Yale, you know, thought I was great when I was writing op-eds about some of the things he would say and 
pontificate on. But then I wrote this book and he called me up and I wanted to interview him and he wouldn't give me an interview and he then chastised me for writing the book. So Duke uh, doesn't talk to me anymore. The, the book about Andover, my friends from Andover, you know, I was invited to speak there and then canceled out of speaking there because somebody must have read the book and decided that huh. they uh, didn't like the depiction of people, you know, in high school drinking and smoking pot and having sex. So I guess that's not something that happens in high school anymore. And what else? So that's that's Bear Stearns, Lazard, Goldman, Duke. Yeah. Pretty much it. Uh, my, my new book is about the rise and fall of GE and the CEO of GE hates me. And I haven't even talked to him. He won't even talk to me. But yeah. Jack Welch loved me and, you know, spent a lot of time with Jack and Jeff Nilmold. We'll see, see how everyone feels when the book comes out. But yeah, sort of occupational hazard. I was just going to use the same term. It's an occupational hazard. Tell us a little bit about your your uh, Lazard book. So you worked at Lazard, and uh, and so this is a little bit different. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I had been a journalist. I went to, as you mentioned, I went to Columbia Journalism School, and then worked as a journalist to the newspaper in Raleigh, North Carolina, covering public schools. And I'd never been to a public school in my life, so that was sort of ironic. But, I, you know, I really enjoyed that. And then after two years of that, I went back to Columbia Business School. And I thought I would get a job at the Wall Street Journal. That's why I went back to business school, because I figured with the journalism background and, and the business and the MBA, and I'd won some investigative reporting awards in Raleigh. And so I thought that combination would be irresistible to the Wall Street Journal. This was when it was owned by the Bankrupt family before the Murdoch crew changed it dramatically. And I loved it. I wanted to work there because I I thought, you know, there'd be these big deals that occurred on Wall Street, you know, like RJR Nabisco deal or whatever it was, and you'd wonder what the hell really happened. And then a couple of days later, there'd be this huge article in the journal about all the behind the scenes stuff about what happened. And I just thought it was riveting. And I, and I wanted to write those stories. Don't ask me why, but I thought that was really what I wanted to do, but they would never hire me. They refused to hire me. I must've tried three or four times, never hire me. So I went to wall street first at G capital financing LBOs, which I had no idea what any of that was, but I figured it out. And then, it, and then at Lazard and I was always interested in Lazard because first it was mysterious and private and they didn't recruit on campus like every other investment bank. I had once tried to get a job there from business school because my father knew somebody who was a bond trader at Lazard. And that's the way you could get an interview there was if you knew somebody. Now, Lazard and bond traders, kind of a joke because they didn't have a bond trading desk per se. They had like one or two people. They didn't really trade. It was basically an M&A firm. And so I got those two interviews with two of the bankers at Lazard, and they never even wrote me a, a ding letter. They just didn't respond to me. They just ignored the fact that I had even had an interview there. But then uh, a few years later, after two years of GE Capital financing leverage buyouts, and this was in... 1989, and uh, two years after the market had crashed in 87, and but I could tell that the capital markets were going to kind of freeze up and that the financing LBOs were kind of going to be over. And, and of course, they were starting in 90 and 91 and 
freezing up for a few more years after that. Anyway, I, I had always wanted to go to Lazard because I didn't get in there the first time and I'm a Francophile and I had read Carrie Reich's book, The Financier about Andre Maier, which is a fabulous book. And, and, you know, I just was always intrigued by the place. And next thing you know, I got hired. I was like the only associate that got hired in 1989. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And, you know, they kept me to get, you know, they didn't have an HR department. They didn't have like onboarding or any of that stuff. I literally sat in an office for three months doing nothing until an associate on, on the big restructuring of Revco drugstores went on vacation and the partners decided that they didn't like that guy. So they scooped me up because I was doing nothing. And that's how I started doing restructuring at Lazard. And then I went, did M&A work at Lazard. And anyway, I was always fascinated by the place. And then when I left Wall Street in 2004, I just thought, well, you know, Carrie Reich had written about Andre Maier, but there'd never really been a full and complete history of Lazard. And there's so many interesting things that I'd heard. I mean, I never thought I would write a book about Lazard. I, I, I never thought I was write another single thing in my life. I thought that I was no longer a journalist. I was a banker and my career would be in banking and journalism was fun, but you know, I didn't achieve what I'd wanted in journalism because I couldn't get a job at the journal and they didn't, they paid like crap. And so, you know, what, what do I need this for? And then I decided, well, you know what I like, I, I, I'd never written, by the way, anything longer than a newspaper article. And I decided, you know what, I want to write a book about Lazard. I don't know why I got that idea, but I got that idea. And I wrote a book proposal. And for some reason, those publishing houses took to it. There was a, there was a, like an M&A frenzy around it. And I sold the book. I wrote the book. It became a bestseller and it won the the FT Business Book of the Year Award, which is why Graydon Carter called me up and asked me if I wanted to be a writer at Vanity Fair, and sort of the rest is history. You, you, you're, you're, you're writing on 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 Lazard. I take it was was not the same kind of book that you that you wrote about when you wrote about Goldman or uh, Bear Stearns, and and then you and and you also wrote a book about which you called Why Wall Street Matters, which I take it was also another book that was talking about some of the uh, the, the virtues of, of Wall Street or the benefits and the power and the necessity of Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say one thing about the first three books, the Lazard book, the Bear book, and the Goldman book. They were all narrative nonfiction. Both the Lazard book and the Goldman book were telling the, the history of the firm. The Bear Stearns book told about the demise of the firm, but also got into the history of the firm. So, you know, and all three of them were based on, you know, extensive interviewing with people who'd worked at these firms and digging into the history and looking at documents and, you know, getting the SEC to let me have documents, et cetera, about investigations. And, and so, I think all three were, were like that. The GE book is going to be like that. The book about the Duke lacrosse case was like that too, narrative nonfiction. I literally took a blank sheet of paper and said to myself, what the hell happened here? You know, I'd really like to know. Why Wall Street Matters was different because that, I was literally in the middle of writing uh, the book about my friends at Andover, which is also a different book. When, you know, the, the, the vitriol being thrown at Wall Street just 
constantly, especially, you know, during the second Obama administration, you know, God bless her, you know, Senator Warren, you know, just decided that, you know, Wall Street was evil incarnate and, you know, she had allies in this and, and, and I'd been, you know, a big critic of Wall Street and the way that it financed itself. As we talked about, the compensation structure on Wall Street, you know, results in bad outcomes, and that hasn't changed. So I've been very, very critical of Wall Street. But but I also decided, hey, everybody, you know, you know, we have to stop here for a minute and take stock of actually what Wall Street does that has given us a lifestyle that's kind of the envy of the world. And Wall Street itself is kind of the envy of the world. It's literally the left ventricle of capitalism. It's, it's you know, it's the intellectual center of capitalism. It's creative center. And so, you know, unless you want to give up your F-150 or your iPod or your iPad or your, you know, your iPhone or your Netflix subscription or any other things we take for granted, your refrigerator, unless you want to give up all those things, let's uh, just slow down a minute here and appreciate the things that Wall Street does well. And then, so that was the first part of the book, to just remind everybody all the things that Wall Street does well and right, and then say, okay, here's a prescription for how to make it even better. You know, let's change the compensation system. Let's have Wall Street take less risk, which is in fact what the Dodd-Frank law and and the Fed regulations have now resulted in, that Wall Street takes less risk. Let's, let's not have Wall Street be the reason that we have the next financial crisis. And so that was, you know, a book, I, I feel like, you know, Wall Street is kind of this black box for most people. And and even if you get inside the black box, it's kind of like crypto. There's this language that nobody really understands. And so I thought, okay, I'd worked on Wall Street. I've written about Wall Street. You know, my one of my jobs is to try to like translate what goes on on Wall Street so that everyday people can understand what it is. And that's what why Wall Street matters. It's it's short, unlike my other books, and it's a quick read about the things that Wall Street does right, the things that Wall Street enables by providing capital to companies all around the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, you know, let's celebrate that, honestly. Let's celebrate that. Let's not kill that. Because if we kill that, and it almost died, it almost got, you know, stuffed out in 2000. Eight and two thousand. So you know, if we kill that, we're gonna, you know, I know it's politically kind of exciting to talk about killing it, and Elizabeth Warren gets a lot of mileage out of that. But you know, let's slow down for a minute here and make sure we don't do something we're gonna really regret. Let's fix Wall Street. Let's try to prevent Wall Street from bringing us all to the edge of a financial crisis again, or or over the abyss. Let's fix it, make it better. Let's make it work for us. Let's figure out a way to make uh, what Wall Street, you know, the capital that Wall Street provides available to more people in a fairer way. Let's try to fix the things that aren't working about Wall Street and make them better rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That was the purpose of that book, but not many people were interested in that. But it's it's such an important message, though, and it's 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 also a message about absolute thinking, that absolute thinking is almost always, which is, I understand, kind of an absolute incorrect 
and and you know the idea of looking at things in a more constructive manner. So you've mentioned uh, a, a few times, and I mentioned it at the beginning during your introduction, your books about the the Duke lacrosse scandal, I guess I'll call it, and and also your your Andover book, the Four Friends book. I'm guessing that that many many members of our audience would be interested in hearing a, a bit about the messages that you were trying to deliver in these two books. These are two different kinds of books. I, I, again, you may have written them with a similar style, but but you know, different topics, obviously. So could you speak to uh, to both of those books as well? Well, well, the Andover book is, you know, just c- completely different that I wanted to, you know, is, you know, now I'm getting to the elderly phase of life. But I, I was sort of noticing in my 40s that, you know, a number of my Andover classmates were dying, of course. We all, nobody gets out alive, but sort of accidentally and weird things were happening. So I was sort of thinking about that. And I would, you know, as it would happen, I would think about that from year to year and sort of collect in my mind this idea that wouldn't it be nice to pay homage to four of my friends who had died young and tragically, and also to use that as a way to reflect on the you know, what we all know in our mind, but don't think about very often is, you know, sort of the fleetingness of life, the existential nature of our existence, et cetera. And so I decided I would just tell the stories of these four guys and what happened to them in their lives. You know, I knew them briefly in a short period of time, you know, at Andover. And, you know, we all sort of went our separate ways in the late seventies and, you know, that was a time before the internet. That was a time before social media. That was a time before cell phones. You know, you know, you couldn't, you, you really, it was hard to stay in touch with people uh, once, you know, you left each other and, you know, you could call up somebody at their, at the pay phone at their dormitory at Brown. But I mean, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. Guys don't really write guys letters. So you know, I decided I would try to figure out what happened to these people, how how they, you know, where they came from, what their families were like, how they got to Andover in the first place, what they did after they left Andover, and how they lived their lives before they died tragically. And then, of course, how they died tragically, which, you know, and you can imagine talking to uh, widows, sisters, brothers, friends of these people, you know, who had died, who had been my friends too, but I didn't know really what happened to them in their lives and how they lived and how they died. So I just thought this is something I had to do. Yeah. And, and one of those four people, four friends was a pretty famous person. Yes. One of the four friends was John F. Kennedy Jr., who I think, you know, might've been president now, but okay, that's a separate topic. You know, I had been his advisor. I was in his dorm at Andover for one year when he came in as a junior and I was a senior, his class uppers at Andover and I was a senior and I was his, one of his blue key advisors. And, you know, we became very friendly, very close as we all did. And, you know, would run into him a few times in New York over the years. And then of course his tragic death. And so but even his story was, I mean, you know, he'd been famous since he was born, right? He was literally the only child born to the president-elect of the United States. He literally 
grew up from the time of his birth till three in the White House. So, I mean, he, he kind of is somebody that belonged to America and, you know, you know, infinitely famous. So while I felt it was important to include his story because he was a, my friend and B, there were things that I knew and that friends of ours knew about him that nobody else knew that I thought would be interesting to share. It, I really wanted to tell the other three stories uh, because they were not famous people. Right. Uh, the, one of them was the grandson of Harry Truman and the son of Clifton Daniel, who'd been the managing editor of the New York Times, but basically no one knew about Will Daniel or Harry Bull. And so, you know, and so I, or Jack Berman, and so I wanted to tell their stories alongside John's. And this was a way to get at the idea of the fleetingness of life. And, you know, you go out one day and you think you're just going to work or you think you're going home at night or I don't want to ruin what happened, but, you know, things change quickly. Yeah. Even for people who are at, uh, you know, a spectacular school like Phillips and, um, I bet every opportunity, every advantage, absolutely everyone. I mean, I, I, I read that Phillips instilled in its students such a powerful belief that they were destined for greatness that you, quote, you yourself felt like a total failure when you had to attend Duke rather than Harvard. <laughs> true? Absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, that's, Absolutely that's amazing. True. That's amazing. Speaking of Duke, Half of our class went to, got into Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. So I was in the half that didn't. Duke's not such a bad school either. Speaking of Duke, though, I I do want to give you a couple minutes to just talk about the message you were you were you were getting at in your book about the Duke lacrosse scandal. Well, it's a complex message, a very complicated story. People think they know what happened. Truth is that very few people realize exactly what happened. It's not as simple as it's been made out to be. First, everybody thought. They knew what happened. The media went crazy with it, that the three boys that got indicted, the cross players, were guilty of all these horrible things. Then the narrative completely flipped around, and it was the DA and the and the woman who made up everything. So both of those are wrong. There's a lot more to the story than people think, but nobody wants to hear what really happened anymore. Certainly not the families of the boys, certainly not Duke, the the woman who was the victim and then became, quote unquote, the accuser. She's now in prison, so there's no constituency for her except for me. The the DA completely got uh, railroaded and hosed, and and he's the, the only one that had to spend time in jail. He spent a day in jail. He filed a personal bankruptcy. He's had health issues. He got, his his story has been completely misrepresented by everybody out to get him and change the narrative. So it's a story about how the justice system can get manipulated by the rich and powerful. And, you know, I don't think there's another example of where pe- three people, in this case, the three lacrosse players, got indicted and there was never a trial. Usually what happens is people get indicted for better or for worse. Grand jury decides there's probable cause, they indict. Then it goes to the courtroom and there's a jury and both sides present their case and the jury decides. Now, my feeling is that had this gone to a jury, the boys would have been acquitted for lots of reasons, which we can't get into 
uh, here. That could be a whole nother episode of podcast. But in this case, what happened was that the State Bar of North Carolina, which had never gone after a sitting district attorney ever in its 150-year history or whatever, decided to go after Mike Nightfong, the DA, and accuse him of, of hiding evidence, which was not true, and accusing him of, you know, other things that were really not true. And so he had to recuse himself from the case. The woman decided that, that you know, he was saying to her, look, you know, I'm going to have to recuse myself from the case because the state bar, this was right before the trial was going to start. State bar is coming after me. I have to defend myself. This might be a good time if you want to to drop the case because really things have changed and, you know, you don't remember everything. The evidence may not be exactly what you were hoping it was be. I may not be, you know, may not be able to prove the case. We may lose the case. So she decided she wanted to go forward with the case anyway. That's when, because she believed that she had been, there was a crime had been committed and she wanted her day in court. That's when the case was taken over by the state attorney general, who's now the governor of, of North Carolina. And then he proceeded to do a secret four-month investigation. And at the end of that secret four-month investigation, none of which has been made public, uh, I FOIA'd the information, never got it. My FOIA requests were ignored. He, you know, issued like a 10-page summary and basically declared the kids innocent and that was the end of it. So you have, and then they got, and I won't ruin this part of it, why the book is called The Price of Silence, because the three boys got a massive financial settlement from Duke, which nobody had known about until my book came out. And that's the only case I can think of where people were indicted and then there was no, and, and then the state attorney general takes over the case and declares the boy innocent declares the boys innocent without revealing any of his evidence that he had compiled. And, you know, that's not even an option in the justice system. It's either guilty or not guilty. It's not innocent. So I don't know. But that, that book upset a lot of people. Yeah, but it, it, it does sound very revealing and very interesting. Bill, Bill we're, we're running a little bit short on time. I want to ask you a couple more questions before we get into our extraordinary teaching segment. I So I have to ask, as I was doing research on you, <laughs> I came across your name with an IMDb credit. I, I, I don't know if this is you. I assume it was, but I have to ask, is that you that got a credit for the, uh, the, sh- the show uh, Succession? Yes, I was a, a consultant on the first season of Succession. I spent a few days, you know, HBO had hired me to do that. I spent a few days uh, in London in the writer's room with the the showrunners and the writers and reviewed with them sort of the various inner workings of Wall Street. And, you know, in the first season, there was this moment when uh, Waystar Royko is is sort of the object of... uh, hostile takeover and the sort of leverage up but talk about leveraging up to to offend off the hostile takeover that was sort of one of the scenarios that i had come up with and you know we talked through all sorts of different ways you know all companies could get taken over or hostile takeovers could occur or how they could defend against a hostile takeover and how they could you know be, be vulnerable to a takeover but not have the takeover succeed. And, you know, some of that has cropped up 
in that first season. And obviously now we're well beyond that. The show was a, you know, huge hit and a huge success. I was not invited up on stage to get my, my Emmy or my Grammy or my Oscar or my whatever it was, but you know, more power to them. I love the show. It's a great, great show. It is a great show. They seem like very interesting people who are working on it. Yeah, it is a great show. All right, let's move into the extraordinary teaching segment. So this is a segment where I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions that I like to ask all of my guests on this show. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? Well, I think aside from, you know, 30 years of marriage and raising two incredible children, my sons who are incredible, you know, I think after I got uh, fired by J.P. Morgan Chase, in 2004, just because they could. And, you know, I was in my early 40s, and that was a very low point for me. I thought it was incredibly unfair what they, how they treated me uh, and what they did to me and what my former colleagues at J.P. Morgan Chase did to me. Again, for no reason other than that they could and that, I guess, they had to because you know, there was a recession on and they had to get rid of uh, high-priced older bankers. And so to recover from that and to somehow find the will and the courage and the, and the stick-to-itiveness to write The Last Tycoons, to, to write a proposal, to sell it, and to keep my butt in the chair, you know, day after day for two years to write that book and then have it come out and be a bestseller and win the award for the best business book of the year. You know, that was going from a low to a high. I mean, my wife and I were invited to London by the FT to be one of the, as one of the five finalists for the business book of the year award in 2007, not knowing what had happened, not knowing who would win. And, you know, one of the other finalists was the Fed chairman who wrote his memoir and Nassim Taleb wrote Black Swan and that's the book everyone was talking about and and then you know it was sort of funny because you know at the Oscars you know they put all the people who they expect to win right in the first row so when they get their name called they just hop up the steps and and, and, and there they are you know I was way in the back my wife and I were seated way in the back and the next thing you know I had heard my name called and I had won and, you know, it took me like 10 minutes to get from the back to the front. And I get up there and Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, is standing there and, you know, telling me how great my book about Lazard is and giving me a check for, you know, 30,000 pounds, which at that point was like 60,000 bucks. You know, that was a great moment. And then I was like the talk of Toast of London for like the next day. And then as Lloyd reminded me years later after I wrote the Goldman book, his thanks for me for, for you know, awarding me the Business Book of the Year Award in, in 2007 was that I wrote a book about Goldman that kind of revealed all sorts of Goldman secrets that nobody wanted, that nobody at Goldman wanted revealed. I just had that thought when you were telling that story. Do you have any regrets? No, no not really. I mean, I, you know, I have disappointments. Like everybody, you know, as you know, as my wife likes to joke with me, you know, uh, 
you know, you thought you should have gotten into Harvard and you didn't. You thought you should have gotten a job at the Wall Street Journal and you didn't. You know, obviously, I thought it was completely unfair that I got fired unceremoniously from J.P. Morgan Chase for doing nothing more than my job. But that worked out in, you know, one door closes, another one opens. You don't even realize, you know, as my sister-in-law says, you can't tell the good from the bad sometimes. And uh, certainly seemed pretty awful in you know, January 2004, but by April 2004, I had a book contract to write The Last Tycoons, which was kind of like my dream come true. And I didn't have to go to an office anymore. I didn't have to wear a suit anymore. I didn't have to wear Hermes ties anymore. I didn't have to deal with internal office politics anymore. All that was behind me. Now I just have to, you know, deal with people not liking what I write. And I, I don't really care. Yeah, Bill, I would tell you that I've become a student of what I would describe as extraordinary people. And I know you're too humble to say that you are extraordinary as you communicated to me in an email, but I believe that you are. I would tell you that one of the things that I've observed about all of my guests is that they have all dealt with sometimes rather significant setbacks in life. And it's how they've responded and the, the amazing way that they've responded that's in many ways made them extraordinary. How about a personal mission? You have a personal mission? Well, it's probably too late for me to have a personal mission at this point. You know, I'm. Or maybe you've had one but have never articulated it. I confess I've always been ambitious. So, you know, whatever it was I was doing, I wanted to be the best that I possibly could be. I mean, you know, when I was a reporter in Raleigh, you know, when I was a journal, a daily journal, journalist, I wanted to be the best I could be. I won back-to-back investigative reporting awards in North Carolina. I wrote stories that got the corrupt school superintendent fired. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to be the best. I, when I went to Wall Street, I wanted to be the best banker I could be and, you know, probably didn't really succeed at that. And now I want to be the best writer I could be. I want to I wanna write books that people want to read and that are bestsellers and that get attention and notice. That's increasingly hard today. I want to, when I write pieces of journalism, I want them to make a difference. I want them to result in, you know, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, as we were taught at at journalism school. And, you know, I want that to happen. Now, that's harder and harder today, too, because, you know, publishers, a lot of journalists, journalism is doesn't have the financial wherewithal it once had. I mean, it used to be a very high margin business, EBITDA margins of 60%. Now all that margin is kind of gone. Publishers don't have the financial wherewithal that they used to have, and they're much more susceptible to these vile attorneys that exist to threaten publishers with nasty letters and lawsuits if they have the cojones to publish stories that are not going to reflect well on the subjects of those stories. And it takes an extraordinarily gutsy publisher to publish stories like that nowadays. And more and more of them are saying, no, they won't publish those stories. And that makes me very sad. And uh, that's very frustrating. So it's kind of hard to, to, to do the job that you want to do and to achieve your aspirations. If, if, you know, a, a major part of the ability to do that is having people having the guts to publish what you write and not being willing to do that anymore because they don't want a a lawsuit from a billionaire. Sure, sure. Bill, last question. 
What do you hope your legacy will be? That I was a, a good husband and a great father. Great answer. Great answer. Do you, do you think of your, your writing sometimes as not children, certainly not the same level, but the, uh, you know, the idea that you almost give birth to these, these books and these stories and that they too can have a lasting legacy? I have made the analogy of writing a book as being similar to giving birth. I was at the birth of my two sons at the knee of my wife, but she was obviously the one giving the birth. But it's very, very hard work. It's very lonely work. Uh, it's it's not enough to write a book. Then you have to sell a book. I've had books where the New York Times review has made them sore, and I've had books where the New York Times Review has killed them in their crib on, day, on the day that they were published. That you can imagine how difficult that is to sort of live, live through. But yeah, I, I think despite the reviews, my, I, I try to make, write books that I, I myself like to read. So they're gripping narratives with chock full of facts that people didn't know about and that they can take away. So yeah, of course I want my books to be my legacy, but, you know, you know, I've lived a varied life, you know, and so I've, I have a lot of interests, you know, I'm on the board of Mass Mocha. I have a lot of interests in art and writing and the outdoors. I've been on Outward Bound twice and Knowles once. I've climbed to the base camp in Mount Everest, you know, I have a lot of different interests. And so I, I prefer not to be, you know, if I'm going to be remembered at all, which, you know, the graveyards are filled with indispensable men, de Gaulle said. So I don't expect to be remembered, but, you know, I have done a lot of different things and had successes across a variety of different endeavors. And so that's, that's about as good as it gets. Agreed. I do agree with that. Thank you so much, Bill. Any parting words for our audience? No, thank you for having me. I would never have expected to be on a podcast like this. So thank yeah. you. Well, I, I've really enjoyed it. And I think just giving your description of all the books, I'm going to have to read your Duke book next. That sounds fascinating. And that is the extraordinary William Cohen. You can learn more about Bill's fascinating work at williamcohen.com. And that's C-O-H-A-N.com, by the way. And join me in following him on Twitter at William Cohen, again, C-O-H-A-N. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for The Extraordinary. Mm -hmm.